Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, thank you so much for your word, the Bible, that it's true and trustworthy and we, it teaches us how to live and it teaches us about your glory. And right now we pray that you clear our mind of distractions, help us to focus on your word, change us by your Holy Spirit to be more Christ-like, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got a... There we go. Now, I don't know about you, I reckon Aussies have a pretty low view of authority. I wonder what you think, if you agree or not. You can tell me later. Um, we often think of authority, authoritative leaders, our prime ministers, even as a bit of a, as a mate or as a bit of a pest, actually, that's annoying me. Um, um, more than we revere them as our nations or our state's leaders, we don't tend to revere them as much as I think, I don't know if we should or not, but we don't. Um, our last Prime Minister wasn't Prime Minister Morrison, was he? Uh, he was ScoMo. There he is, ScoMo, cheering on his favourite rugby league team, the Sharkies, sick of having a VB or something, having a beer. Ah, ScoMo, legend, that kind of thing, you know. I imagine if the guys saw him at the game, they wouldn't be like, oh, Prime Minister, so nice to see you. would be like, ah, ScoMo. Um, and our current Prime Minister isn't Prime Minister Albanese, is he? He's Albo. There he is, there's Albo. Right there in the middle. Oh, what happened to my circle? <laughs> it looks like a mask. It looks like a superhero. There's Albo. His team just had a good win and he's sucking back on a tinny. Albo, our nation's leader that we revere, sort of. Um, I wonder why is it, do we struggle to respect our, our leaders? Why is it? I mean, why do we struggle to respect these men? The mind boggles, doesn't it? Um, you can just imagine Roman emperors, can't you, being the same? There he is, Emperor Julius Caesar, sucking back in a tinny. You can just imagine it, can't you? And you can just imagine his subjects saying, Hey, Jules, how's it going? How about another beer, mate? No, you can't imagine that. And if Emperor Julius Caesar ever saw this slide, he'd probably feed me to the lions. <laughs> that's, that's what would happen, right? If you didn't revere... If you didn't revere your leaders back in those days, this is what, that's what would happen. He'd feed you to the lions. Lara is dying up the road. <laughs> how do we view authority today? And is it a problem? And does it get in the way of how we view, how we revere Jesus? How we, how we look upon him as our uh, authority? I really think a respect for authority comes down to two issues, and those are power and love. Power and love influence how we respect authority greatly. Um, firstly, do our leaders actually have the power to look after us and care for us and lead us in the way that we need to be led or want to be led? Do they have the power to actually pull off good leadership? And I think that's one of the big problems for our Prime Ministers, is they just don't have the power and authority to do all the things that they promised they will do. Um, do they have the power to look after us, and do they actually love us? Do our leaders actually have the desire to care for us and lead us in the very best way they can, or are they, are they self-involved? And if they did have the power and the desire to look after us and love us really, really well, would we not willingly and eagerly submit to their rule if they had the power and the desire to look after us? Surely we'd quickly be, we'd quick, be quick to submit to them. Now, here's a question. Does Jesus have these qualities? Does Jesus have the power to care for us and the desire to care for us? And if so, 
Is there any other reason that we don't willingly and urgently submit to his rule? Is there anything getting in the way of us submitting to his rule? What's stopping us from just quickly submitting ourselves to Jesus' rule if he does have the power and the desire to look after us? Okay, so that's kind of where we're at. We're thinking about authority, we're thinking about kings and rulers, and we're thinking about ourselves and our willingness to submit to authority or not. So, it's a great story, isn't it, in Matthew chapter 2. I love how Matthew doesn't beat around the bush in telling us the story of Jesus' birth. I'm thinking he's probably not the artistic creative one. That's probably Luke. Um, If I was telling the story, it'd be kind of Matthew. If John Dunbier was telling the story, it'd be more Luke. There'd be more details and about things that went on. I'm kind of like, this is what happened, that's it. Um, Luke's the one who tells the story of the shepherds and the angels and the manger and all that kind of stuff, but Matthew doesn't. Actually, Mark ignores the story completely. Um, And John pretty much as well. Um, The writer John, not John Dunbier. They just ignore the the birth narrative completely. He's an adult uh, when John starts telling the story of Jesus' life. Um, It's interesting how the different gospel writers focus on different things about Jesus. And that, that, I think that makes the case that this is true all the more compelling. Because these are real people and they had different things they focused on as they presented the true story about who Jesus was and what he did and why it matters. Matthew's focus is Old Testament fulfilment. Matthew wants to show us how God's plan has been playing out over history and then is fulfilled in Jesus. That's Matthew's big thing. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. If you want to start to get your head around the Old Testament some more, and particularly how the Old Testament teaches us about Jesus, read Matthew's gospel and then look back into all the Old Testament quotes uh, that he makes, as we've been doing these past couple of weeks. God has his plan and God's plans cannot be stopped. We'll get to that more in a moment. Um, And Matthew wants us to see that. He wants to see that God had this plan from centuries ago and it's being fulfilled here in Christ. Now, we're told at the start, the very start, that Magi came from the far east. So let's look again at verse 1 and 2. You got your Bible open? That's helpful. If not, it's on the screen. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, let's get straight to it, during the time of King Herod, okay, we've got a historical anchor from Matthew, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They've followed this star that's led them to Jerusalem. Now, I've read this passage a hundred times and I've never been so struck by it than I was this week. There's dozens of opinions about how far the Magi travelled. They probably, the general consensus seems to be it probably took them a couple of weeks uh, to, get, to get here from where they live, by camel or foot. Uh, Magi were learned people. They probably were astronomers. They kind of studied the stars. And so this would have really stuck out to them. Somehow they knew, I don't know how, it doesn't say, somehow they knew this star would lead them to the king of Israel. And for some unknown reason, they decided to follow it for days, probably weeks of a tough journey from the east to get to the Middle East uh, to find this baby, this foreign baby. It's just, why did they do 
Why'd they do it? How'd they do it? How'd they know? What was the motivation for them to follow this star? But they went. And they followed it and they found it. We don't know how many magi there were. Historical kind of belief is there was three because there's three gifts. But it doesn't say there was three magi, does it? It just says magi. There could have been a hundred of them. Could have been a whole gang of magi who came from the east with three different gifts. Uh, We don't really know. Um, There's no indication they were kings whatsoever in the Bible. You know, we three kings of Orient, uh, I can't sing. So there's nothing about them being kings uh, in the Bible whatsoever. I don't know where that song came from. That's a cool song. Um, It's just, you know, not factual. Um, The only thing I can conclude is the Holy Spirit prompted these Eastern wise men, astronomers, magi, the Holy Spirit prompted them to follow this star for days, travelling at night, presumably, when you can see the stars. And they knew it would lead them to this newborn King of Israel, they said. They somehow knew that. And they were not the only ones on the quest for the king. So was Herod, but for very different reasons. Look at verse 3. When King Herod, king of Israel, learned, heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem were disturbed with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. It's a new word. Where's the Messiah going to be born? And the chief priests and teachers of the law replied, in Bethlehem in Judea. Now, when an evil tyrant gets worried, everyone gets worried. Herod's disturbed, everyone's disturbed. Oh no, what's, what's wrong with Herod? What's about to happen? Herod's upset, that's concerning. Um, who knows what happens next? Now, Herod was evil beyond imagination and somehow he also got wind that this king was born and he calls him Messiah. Fascinating. Why... This king, why does King Herod refer to this baby that's born as Messiah? But he does. He asked the chief priests and the teachers where the Messiah was going to be born. Now, smart that he pulled together the chief priests and teachers of the law. They should know. Of course, this is this king of the Jews has been born. They should know all about it. And uh, he's too on the quest, along with the Magi, for the king, but for different reasons. Now, I love how quick the Jews were to respond. King Herod asked, where will the Saviour be born? And they said, oh, Bethlehem, Judea, for sure. Because they know their Old Testaments. They know the prophecies. They knew that this was prophesied 500 years earlier. And they assume it's finally happening. The Messiah is coming into the world as was promised. Now, but here's the question. Why aren't they running out the door to go and worship this newborn King of Israel? They're the chief priests and teachers of the law. These are the gods, supposedly God's people who teach the Bible. You would think they'd be first out the door. This has been prophesied from ages past and now it's happened. Eight kilometres from where they stand, it's happened. Just eight k's away. A stroll, really, back in those days. They could have done it in an hour, stopping for a coffee on the way. But they don't move. They don't want to see him. 
Gentile, non-Jew, non-God's people, magicians, are on their way from a thousand kilometres away or more, but God's so-called church so-called leaders who are just up the road aren't interested in seeing Jesus. Interesting. It's bewildering. But we'll learn later on, as we continue to read Matthew's Gospel, they will also, along with King Herod, just see Jesus as a threat to their power. Jesus is going to take away our power. He becomes a threat. And increasingly, the chief priests and the teachers of the law look to kill Jesus. And in the end, spoiler alert, they succeed in killing Jesus. Now, we're going to skip over the Old Testament prophecy in verse 6 just for a minute. We'll come back to it in a sec. And we're going to follow Herod's quest for the king down in verses 7 and 8. So look with me. Verse 7, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them. These are people from a long way away. And the King Herod looks to them. He calls them together. He finds out a bit of more detail. He finds out the exact time the star had appeared. And then he sends them on a, on a, on a mission. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child as soon as you find him. Report to me so that I too may go and worship him. What a liar. Oh, what a lie. Now, I'm, I'm asking the question, why didn't he send the Jewish leaders to go and find the Messiah? Um, it's their Messiah, or should be. But these new arrivals, he pulls them in in secret and he sends them on a mission to help him out. It's all so bizarre. And he says, come back and tell me once you find where the child is, so that I can go and worship him as well. In other words, find him and feed him to the lions, because he's going to threaten my throne. Two very different responses, isn't there? Very different responses to the coming of this Messiah into the world. King Herod, who wants this new threat to his throne dead, the Jewish church leaders who are in cahoots with Herod and have no interest in worshipping the newborn king. And then there's the Magi, Gentiles from another land who travel hundreds of kilometres in order to bow down and worship the newborn king. Two very different responses. And that's going to that's gonna be the story for Jesus' ministry as he goes forward. Some will love and bow down and worship and submit. Some will hate him and try to kill him. And nothing's changed today, has it? The question is, will almighty King Herod succeed in his plan to kill the king? Well, the short answer is, of course not. Of course not. This is a plan that the creator of the universe hatched before he created the universe. And Matthew helps us to see clearly that God's plan is unstoppable by again quoting the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> we see... God's plan being fulfilled. And Matthew wants us to see that very clearly. Look again with me at the prophecy from Micah in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 2. This is what the prophet Isaiah, sorry, this is what the prophet Micah has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you, for out of you will come a ruler who will do what? Shepherd. My people Israel. So in order to stand the prophecy, we need to jump back into Micah 5. So flick back in your Bibles 
It'll also be on the screen if you couldn't be bothered <laughs> to flick back in your Bibles. I learned something a little while ago. There's 12 minor prophets. The last 12 books of the Bible are minor prophets. The first five of those minor prophets have an O in their name, and the last seven don't. Exactly. Wow. So if you're looking for a minor prophet and you're not sure where he is, if there's an O, you know it's at the start. And if there's not an O, you know it's at the back. Mark is towards the back. There you go. Who already knew that? Fletcher? That's it. There you go. See, I thought you were something at least. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Micah 5 says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. Actually, okay. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Okay, I'm going to stop there. The context for the prophet Micah's writing is again the Assyrian invasion in 735 to 701 BC. There it is. So in 735 BC, Assyria was the pinky purple bit. And then by 701 BC, they'd been very busy. Over the last two generations, they'd taken over all the green bit. They were this massive empire. And the bottom left part of the kidney is Judah, which isn't quite conquered, but it will be soon. Now, uh, Judah's seriously threatened and it will soon be overrun by the Assyrians. And as we learned from the kid spot and last week, uh, Ahaz, King Ahaz, the ruler of Judah, sells out. He's like, oh, Assyrians, I'm on your side. I'm, yeah. And they say, okay, for now. And then they conquer him later on. Um, so the prophecy says, they'll strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So Assyria, this is Assyria conquering uh, Israel striking Ahaz on the cheek with a rod, they take him out. Now, I want to take a little digression here. Um, I think it's hard for us to feel uh, the situation because we have it so good as Christians. If you try to, as much as you can, imagine what it's like to be God's people under these circumstances with this massive nation knocking on the front door, about to, about to move in and, and conquer them. I can, I can only liken it to China sort of conquering every state um, and they're sort of coming down through Byron Bay and, you know, it won't be long before we're overrun. So for God's people, it's, it's terrifying and they're soon to be overrun by this pagan nation. For us, we find it hard to relate but not for most Christians. Most Christians can really easily relate to the plight of God's people in this time, in this place, because this is their life. Severe persecution, severe insecurity. Uh, this year in Algeria, the government was shutting down churches because uh, they preached Jesus. This year... In Nigeria, a Christian high school student was murdered by her Muslim classmates because she's Christian. This is students murdering a student for religious reasons. This year in Bangladesh, a young man was hospitalised because he was bashed by his own family for trusting in Jesus. This year in India, a pastor 
um, was killed, was murdered because he wouldn't renounce his faith and stop preaching Jesus. This, the middle band around the earth has millions of Christians and all of them severely persecuted. Um, Open Doors have a world watch list every year. They come out with the 50 most dangerous countries in the world to be a Christian in. We're never on it, of course. In 49 out of the 50 countries on the Open Doors World Watch List, children in schools, Christian children in schools, experience significant persecution from their school because they believe in Jesus, trying to coerce them into changing their mind. So this is the situation for God's people when this prophecy comes. So you can imagine for these people who live in these other countries where it's so, so terrifying to be a Christian. This prophecy of hope is massive for them. Does that make sense? Um, our country is really unusual to be a Christian in because it's so very, very safe and very, very acceptable to trust in Jesus. But I can see that changing. As our nation becomes more and more socialist in its ideology, it's changing. It's going to become harder and harder to follow Jesus in our country. Hence my urgent plea last week to parents, please arm your children with the word of God. They're going to need it more than you ever have. So this is a situation. God's people experiencing the same level of threat from the world as God's people were in 700 BC. By God's grace, it's not happening right here. Right here. Not yet. Okay. Then the prophecy speaks of great hope. So let's read on. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth security now we ought to think of king david when we hear that something's happening in bethlehem in judah for he too was born in bethlehem this ruler to come has old origins he's descended from the line of david oh my goodness wow this one to come descended from the line of david that's huge if you know your old testament this is, this, is, this is important. This is God's plan being fulfilled. Throughout history, God's plowed forward in his mission to dwell with his people forevermore. That's been his hope and his plan. That was how it was in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. He dwelled with his people. That's his longing to dwell with his people and to keep them safe. And time and time again throughout history, people's sin messed it up so that he couldn't dwell with his people. But he plowed forward King David's adultery with Bathsheba would not thwart his plan. He used it for his glory and grace. Solomon's lust for power and ultimate demise could not thwart God's plan. He ploughed forward. The Assyrian army was just a utensil in God's hand to teach his people a lesson. It wasn't going to thwart God's plan. Assyria was part of God's plan. And King Herod is just a puppet on a string in the same fingers that flung the stars into space. And King Herod, try as he might, 
will not thwart God's plan. God's plan is unstoppable. And one is promised to come into the world who will fulfill all that the Old Testament prophets have predicted. Of course he will, because God's plan is unstoppable. That ought to comfort you if your trust is in Jesus. God's plan is unstoppable. We've seen it throughout history. And it ought to frighten you if your hope is not in Jesus. Because God's plan is unstoppable. Life will be tough for Christians. Always has been, always will be. Tough, sad, painful. Terrifying for Israel and for many of our brothers and sisters across the world. The prophecy says, until the virgin bears a child. And when he comes, he will, what will he do? What does it say? He will conquer. He'll destroy. He'll annihilate. Is that what it says? No. What's it say he'll do in verse 4? In the strength of Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, and in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, this great ruler to come, prophesied for centuries by Isaiah, by Micah, by others, descendant from King David will come and he'll do what? Shepherd his people. Shepherd his people. And despite the invasion of Assyria, Despite the beatings and the imprisonments and the murders that God's people experience daily today, the promise remains that God's people will one day live securely with no danger and no threat of violence or harm, secure in the arms of the one whose greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. It's always been God's promise to his people, always that he'll protect them. Look at verse 34, uh, uh, sorry, chapter 34 of Ezekiel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so I will look after my sheep. I'll rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I'll bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I'll bring them into their own land. That's always been God's desire. It's always been his will for his people. And sadly and mind-bogglingly, God's people time and again reject his loving rule because of the hardness of their sinful hearts. Like us, God's people throughout history are sinners. And the natural inclination of the sinful heart is to reject authority. The natural inclination of the human heart is self-rule. But read the Bible or watch the news and you'll see where self-rule lands us. It lands us in conflict, anarchy, hatred, murder and judgment. We need a saviour. We need a saviour. All of us, one who can rescue us from our sin. And we need a ruler who will care for us and lead us in the right direction for our sinful hearts will always lead us astray. 
We need a ruler who can lead us in the right direction. Because our sinful hearts will always lead us astray. We actually need a good shepherd to save us and to lead us in the right direction. And Jesus describes himself like this in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They'll come in and go out and find pasture, good pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He's talking about the Jewish leaders, by the way, at this point. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The one the Magi came to behold was none other than the one sent by God to rule and to shepherd. The one who is truly God himself, our Saviour and our Lord, Jesus Christ. So I think there's two things we learn today from these passages. passages. One is we can trust in Jesus. <laughs> Sounds like a, a silly thing to say. I'm preaching to the choir. We can trust in Jesus. We can't ever fully trust in human leaders. We can't fully trust in ScoMo. We can't fully trust in Albo. We can't even fully trust in Gavo. All human leaders are still human and sinners. And humans, unlike Jesus, don't have the power to help people in any way that they want because they're human. They're limited. They're finite. And sinners don't have the ability to always love others perfectly because they still dwell in sinful flesh. And we still have this conflict to deal with as human sinners. Try as I have not to let anyone down these past seven years of our young church's life, I know I have many times. And I know I will in the future because I'm human and I live in sinful flesh. But Jesus won't ever, ever let you down. He won't ever fail you. He'll never tire. He'll never get it wrong when he was trying to get it right. He'll always get it right. He'll always lead you in the right direction. And he's got the power and authority and the love and the mercy to rule and love us as we need to be ruled and loved. He's got the power to save us from our sin, rescue us from the judgment that we deserve. He has the power and the desire to rule us and lead us and love us and shepherd us in the way we need. He can do that. He's actually genuinely trustworthy in all things at all times. He's our perfect ruler and shepherd. He rules, that is, he protects and he judges, keeps his people safe, and he shepherds. He loves and he cares for and he leads us where we ought to go in the direction that's best for us all. So we can trust in him. The question is, do we? Will we? Well, we ought to because he's so trustworthy. God can be trusted. Jesus came into the world to save us from our sin 
He can be trusted with our very lives. We are precious to him. We're loved by him. If our faith is in Jesus, we're saved by him. So what's it look like to truly trust in Jesus? And what gets in the way? Why don't we fully submit ourselves to him in all things at all times? Because we don't, do we? We struggle to trust Jesus. We struggle to trust him at his word. There's some parts of the Bible we find hard to obey. We struggle. What's it look like to truly trust in Jesus? I think this is a big question that's worth discussing further. Here's some thoughts. I think it looks like peace of mind and peace of heart when we truly trust in Jesus in all things. I think faith in Jesus really drives out fear and anxiety. Um, We talked about hope and fear last week. This certain hope in Jesus drives out worldly fears such as finances and health and education and what's the government doing next. It drives out those fears if we trust that Jesus is Lord over all and he's powerful to save. He's got everything in hand and he's promised to protect his flock. It drives out those fears. It gives us peace. It's understandable we get stressed. It's understandable we get anxious. We're human beings living in a stressful world. We lead hectic lives. But I just think, I think we take on too much. I think we get the balance wrong. Um, If not all of us, most of us get the balance wrong. I think we squeeze out time with God. I think we squeeze out time in God's word, remembering who he is. We squeeze out time to pray, to cast our fears and anxieties on him. I think we we so fill our lives, we squeeze out time to remember that Jesus has it all in hand. Now that's that's easy to say if you're a young mum, hard to do. So we need to help one another. And I think husbands, I don't know, remind your wives of the goodness of God and the value in their mothering and the joy that God feels in your parenthood while they're breastfeeding or while they're (laughs) laying in bed with their eyes shut. You know, remind one another of the goodness of God. I think we forget. We get so busy. We squeeze out time to remember that Jesus is good and loves us and has us in his hand. And so we get scared. We get fearful. Um, Lara and I are trying hard to get into a routine of waking up early. That's the first challenge. When I say early, I mean 6.30, which is like two hours after some of you get up. Um, have a coffee in bed together, read our Bibles for five or ten minutes, pray together for five or ten minutes. And I, it's very hit and miss at the moment. Um, Mission week was very miss. Um, but this is our attempt at just trying to find time each day to remember that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King and Jesus is our Saviour. And whatever happens today, it's going to be okay. 
Jesus has us in hand. And it, does, it helps me. It helps me have that bit of peace as I go into my day. It helps me to avoid self-rule and to, and to keep Jesus as Lord and King in my day. Um, that might not work for you. You might, you know, I don't know, you're at the door at 6 o'clock for work or something. Um, but I think we need to find somehow to remember each day that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King. And he's, the, the world powers um, are just puppets on a string. They're just they're smoldering logs in God's eyes. God is so powerful. And he has us all in hand, everything that's going on. I think if we just find out somehow, remembering that Jesus is Lord, we will enter our days with the hope and peace, confidence that Jesus is king. Putin's not king. Elbow's not king. Interest rate hikes are not king. Jesus is king. Um, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to work it out. I'd love to chat to you about it and workshop it together about how we de-hectic our lives just enough to make a priority of having that time with the Lord, remembering the hope we have in the King so that we'll trust Him entirely, submit to Him fully uh, with our lives. Let me me pray that God will help us to work it out. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for our King and our Saviour and our Ruler and our Shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And loving Father, we, we just forget as, as your people that you have everything in hand. We, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to get stressed. We don't need to get angry. Um, we can just trust whatever's going on around us. Uh, for your people in many parts of the world, they're, they're under the most gruesome persecution. And yet they trust. And Lord, help us to trust Jesus. Help us to obey your word. If we trust you fully, we will obey you willingly. Drive us out of self-rule, Lord. Help us to submit to Jesus, the, the one who is almighty, has the power to do anything. And he's our loving shepherd who wants to lead us to good pasture. So, Lord, help us to find a way as your people each day to remember that Jesus is our loving Saviour and King and his rule is worth submitting to. And, Lord, we pray for those in the room who have not yet put their trust in Jesus. Lord, that they will. We pray for your mercy on them, that you'll work in them, that they'll see that Jesus is a wonderful saviour and wonderful king and they need rescuing that they might entrust themselves, repent of their sin and trust themselves to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.